Good morning. We are continuing to work our way through the book of Acts. If you're visiting today or kind of just catching up, uh, we started in Acts chapter 1, verse number 1, because that's the beginning. And we have been working our way uh, verse by verse or section by section uh, through the book of Acts. And kind of what happens throughout the whole book is you'll have a story and then like a summary statement that ends up being like, yeah, this happened then, but then this season And we don't really know how long those summary statements cover. Sometimes it might just be a few days or a few weeks or maybe even a few months in the story uh, of kind of the beginning of this thing called church. And and, and where we've been is in a specific story uh, that we're going to get a summary statement this morning. And then we're going to get another kind of contrasting set of stories. And this, the story that we've been in for several weeks now is what I said was my favorite story in the New Testament. Uh, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. It's this amazing story is this thing called church is launching where Peter and John are coming to the temple. It's the time of prayer. Uh, they see a guy who's over 40 years old and who's never taken a step in his life. And they, he's asking for money. He's hungry. And they said, man, We don't have silver and gold, but what we do have, we're going to give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he doesn't. He rises up and dances. (laughs) He doesn't just walk. Instantly, a guy who's never taken a step is leaping and he's jumping through the temple. And, And after this incredible event happens, everybody pays attention. Go figure. Right. Uh, If today somebody walked in here and they had a 40 year ailment and I was like, in the name of Jesus, fix that. And they were like, I'm fixed. Probably people would lean in and be like, "Mm, I want to hear more about this Jesus. And sure enough, they go outside to the 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 east edge of the temple. It's called Solomon's porch and thousands of people gather together. Peter tells them about Jesus and they get arrested. Like it just healed Lame Bob, who hadn't walked in 40 years, and were arrested for that. And they stand before what's kind of like the Supreme Court of that day. And the Supreme Court is like, hey, don't do that. And they're like, we're really on trial for doing good? What in the world? And they said, well, don't talk about that name anymore. And they said, here's the deal. You're the Supreme Court. You judge whether we should obey you or obey God. Because here's the deal. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. It's just the name of Jesus. And they're like, well, stop it. Or else. Go away. They go back, we think, to that upper room. After all that miraculous boldness, they gather together with the people of God, and they ask for more boldness. It's crazy. And the place is physically shaken with the manifest power of God. That's where we left off two weeks ago. We're going to pick back up with a summary statement this morning. So grab your Bible, if you would, or whatever device you use for your Bible. Uh, If you're a guest today, we have a tradition here. We hold our Bibles up and we say a creed together about what we believe this book to be. And so we invite you, if that's where you're at, to join with us in that tradition this morning. Let's hold them up and let's say this together. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me 
for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. Turn back again to Acts chapter 4. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 858. Acts chapter 4, we're going to be towards the end of the chapter. Uh, We've been moving pretty slow here. Uh, We're about to pick up some steam. God willing, uh, really, I I think this is not a, this should be where chapter 4, or rather where chapter 5, I mean, begins. Uh, The chapter break probably should have been, you know, because they should have consulted with me first. um, Probably should have been at the end of verse 31, uh, or maybe, I don't know, verse 33, somewhere around there, because uh, we're summarizing all of this and then given two examples of it. So here's the summary statement, verse 32. Now, the full number, means everybody involved, of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And then here's the phrase that I want to be the kind of the, the hub of the wheel that the whole conversation is going to come from this morning. I love this verbiage here. And great grace was upon them all. Like not just grace was on them, and not just they showed grace or felt grace. Great grace was upon them. I don't know that there's anything greater than grace, but apparently there's such a thing as great grace. Right? I can add that to my Christian expletives when my kids drive me. Great grace. Would you clean up your room? I don't don't know. Apparently there's a, a great grace. And the word great here is amazing. Uh, you don't have to know original languages to understand the Bible, but this is one of those cool words. If you Google this or look this up, the word great here is a word called Megali, where we get mega from. This is big honking. That's not in the Greek. This is big old grace, right? This is supersize, right? Come on. Supersize me, right? Where's where's my generation at? Those were our commercials, right? Isn't it amazing? <laughs> the most obese country was like, we should invent something called supersize. Anyways, apparently there's such a thing as supersize grace. Isn't that incredible? Like, and, and grace, if you're not familiar with it, that's that's not God withholding punishment from us. That's mercy. Sometimes we misuse that. Grace is God giving us good stuff. That we didn't do anything to deserve or earn. The, the good news of grace, apparently a honking dose of it, was upon them. How do you know that that's on you, right? Like, oh, that was some grace. Like, what? how do you know? I almost wore a shirt today that had the word grace on it. Oversized. I, great grace is upon me today. What does that mean? I think this unique phrase, mega grace, can become for us the lenses of this whole narrative and text that we're going to look at this morning. Maybe it's not that, that they had all things in common and, and that they were unified. 
and they had great grace. Maybe it's that they experienced great grace, and that's the explanation for everything else they saw happening around them. Right? And so maybe we're not going to rewrite the Bible. That's dangerous. But maybe we could say, because great grace was upon them all. Right? And so with that idea that this is what great grace looks like when people are growing in it and walking in it and swimming in it. Right? I want us with that thought to start back again at the beginning of the passage and reread it through the lenses of this is what great grace looks like. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Great grace produces great unity. It says the full number. And we don't know what the full number is. For all of you, like engineer type, you're like, it would have been nice to know the number. Right? It doesn't give us that detail. But we know there's at least... 8,000. If you think about the last two years in our culture, to find eight people who are of one heart and soul is difficult to find, right? And somehow they experienced something that united them despite their obvious differences. There's no way that 8,000 people saw the world the same way. There's no way that 8,000 people were from the same cultural background. There's no way that they all had the same education status, economic status, or political views. There's no way. But the thing that united them was they experienced supersized grace in their life. And they were like, hey, that means you're not actually my enemy. Right? Great grace produces Great unity. And this unity was this compassionate unity that we'll, we'll look at more in a minute. For here we just see no one said that any of the things that belonged to them, like it was actually their stuff, was actually their stuff. They didn't say it was their own. They had everything in common. Verse 33, and with great power, with great power, The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You know what it looks like when we get great grace? Because I think sometimes we've defined grace as, I get whatever I want. Things are going well for me. What great grace looked like in this passage is in the face of persecution, they kept speaking Jesus. Grace looked like they opened their mouth. And I love how it says that they were giving their testimony. We're telling somebody else's story. Man, that's good right there, y'all. Come on. We need to circle, underline, highlight the word there. God in his work of grace has given you a story worth telling. Great grace isn't just to be enjoyed, it's to be expressed. God has stuck you in a, in a, in a, in an office building or in a warehouse or on a floor of a hospital. Not just so that you'll do your job well to his glory, but that you'll tell your story of how you've experienced great grace. So sometimes great grace doesn't look like safety. Isn't that interesting? 
When I pray grace over my kids, I'm not like, God, I pray you'd give them power to speak Jesus in the face of persecution. It's usually not what I mean when I ask for his grace. I mean keep them healthy and safe and warm and happy, right? But great grace doesn't just produce great unity. Great grace produces great boldness in speaking Jesus. Look at the next idea here. There was not a needy person among them. That's such a powerful phrase. This big old group of people. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as they had need. Supersized grace produces supersized generosity. Great grace produces great generosity. I I said this uh, several weeks ago, way back when we were in Acts chapter 2. Skip Heitzig said, this is not communism. This is commonism. Said they had everything in common. Notice that the text is very explicit that, that they owned these lands. It wasn't taken from them. They were owners. Right? So in communism, the right of ownership is taken from you, or even in socialism. That's not what's happening here. Something's happening inside of them that makes them see their stuff differently in comparison with the needs they see around them. When grace has its work in us, it produces generous hearts. I love this phrase. J.D. Greer said, the gospel of grace had loosened their grip on their stuff and tightened their grip on each other. That's what grace does. And that's the thing. The gift of grace, the favor of God, which means when you look at your nice house, you go, man, this is a gift of grace, right? You look at your car that runs and you think about your early days as a young adult and you're like, this is a gift of grace, But that gift of grace isn't to be held on tightly to. It's to say, man, God, how can this gift be also a gift to someone else? That this gift of great mega grace produces generous hearts in us. So communism says what's yours is mine. Commonism says what's mine is yours. That's the generosity of great grace transforming our view of our stuff, of the things that we desire and the things we hold tightly to. And man, are we ever in a season of mine, right? Finding Dory, little birds, mine, 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 mine. We're surrounded by that, right? That's what our culture says. Don't, don't tell me what to do. This is mine. God can't tell me what to do with my sexuality. It's mine. God can't tell me what to do with my relationships. They're mine. God can't tell me what to do with my money. It's mine. But the work of grace doesn't just set us free for eternity. It sets us free from the illusion of mine. Great grace produces great generosity. It also produces 
great accountability. You see what it says that they did with their offerings? They publicly came and laid them at the apostles' feet. So for our offering this morning, I'm inviting you to come... I can't even finish the sentence. I'm afraid somebody's going to clip that and stick it on the internet. (laughs) You'd be like, oh, we're a cult now. Good to know. Maybe an announcement about that would have been nice beforehand, but we're a cult now. Okay. It sounds so weird, right? But in their system, in that moment, that was the equivalent of there's no secrets with where the money is going. And yet a criticism I constantly hear of churches in the U.S. is it seems that the more money a church has, the more secrets there are about where it goes. Every week in the weekly email, we have a link in there that says what dollars came in and where they were designated to. No unaccounted pennies, at least not on purpose. If we make a mistake, talk to Monica. Um, (laughs) And then, and then every month, we give a printed, sitting right now, this morning, at the Welcome Center, is a piece of paper that says, this is the budget that the congregation approved, and this is what we actually spent last month. And the top line says, and this is how much came in last month. <laughs> that's, the, that's an important line, because we can't do any of the other stuff if that doesn't happen. No secrets there, right? And it's weird that... So I don't think that's strange. You know, back in the day, we had printed bulletins. We didn't send emails, right? And I think most of the churches I grew up, they were like, here's what was given last week, right? If you grew up in a country church, there was a little wooden sign on the wall. It's a little numbers, right? We had three in Sunday school (laughs) and 294 in worship service, right? And then it was this offering, right? That that just seems normally, and yet in the last two weeks, I've had three people tell me that they're so impressed that we have that link in our email. I'm like, is that not normal? Apparently, grace sets us free from having to keep secrets. And so I don't say that to throw any stones at how another church does something. I need to say that. I'm just saying, here's the deal. I believe the work of grace means we ain't got to be shady about stuff. We don't have to fear that our secrets are going to keep up with us. Or catch up with us, rather. That didn't make sense. So now, we're going to see the, the work of grace in two stories that are very different from each other. Okay? Here's the first one. Verse 36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was a Levite and a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him. Again, it belonged to him. Nobody took it from him. Nobody told him he had to do this. Nobody was like, if you were a good Barnabas, you'd go do this. No. The field belonged to him. He, and he sold it. He brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's what he did. Right? And they were like, son of encouragement. 
Look. <laughs> Just <laughs> don't shake your head at me. <laughs> My mom just fell out of her chair if she's watching online. (laughs) The work of grace in Joe's life produced a generosity in him that was so encouraging they gave him a nickname. Son of encouragement. Nicknames were a normal thing in the Bible. Gospel of Matthew is actually written by a guy named Levi. Right? Peter's name, which means rock, wasn't rock. It was Simon, which meant hearing. And let's be honest, that doesn't look like a strength of his. No wonder he got a nickname. James and John, the brothers, were called the Sons of Thunder. Sounds like a rock man. Who do you play for? Sons of Thunders, bro. Right? Cool nickname. I've never had a nickname anywhere near that cool. And then here we've got Joseph. And they called him Barney. <laughs> but what happened is the work of grace in Joe's life Produced this generosity that so encouraged the people around him. All of a sudden, he's just now stepping into the narrative. He becomes a a profound leader in the rest of the story. In Acts chapter 9, we'll get to it in a few weeks, is the conversion of Saul, the persecutor and executioner, to Paul, the apostle, that we wouldn't, from a human perspective, be doing this today without him. The first follower of Jesus who said, let's give this guy a chance, was Barnabas. Everybody else was like, "Mm, he's faking. It's a trap. Like, nope. And he was like, guys, no, I believe the grace of God has rescued him. He was the first one. The other reason I think he played a key role in us hearing the gospel is in Acts chapter 11, he's the first one to lead the way for the gospel to be preached to Gentiles. He leads the way in the church at Antioch. When famine strikes this church in Jerusalem, farther down the road, the guy that they put in charge of gathering funds and helping the people in a famine, Barnabas. And then on the first ever missionary journey of Paul, the first time the gospel started to go to the end of the earth, who was his companion? On the first missionary journey, Barnabas. And then, on Paul's second missionary journey, guess who wasn't a companion of his? Barnabas. You know why? He was leading his own missionary journey with a guy who's really important to you and me. His name is John Mark. John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, which we call the Gospel of Mark and not John Mark because it would be weird that it's next door to the Gospel of John. John Mark is known for being a runner. We don't totally know the story. All we know is on that first missionary journey, young John Mark failed. And Paul said, I'm done with you. And Barnabas said, grace is never done with anybody. 
And he took him and restored him and took him on that second missionary journey. This is Barnabas. Here's what great grace produces. Trustworthy leaders among the people of God. We see great grace producing a great leader here. And here's why that's really important. He was not an apostle. If you're like, yeah, great grace produces great leaders. That's why it's your job to talk about Jesus, pastor. No, 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 no. He was just one of the people. He was just growing in grace as part of the family. And when we grow in grace, you know what God does? He raises up men and women who are full of grace to be influential leaders among the body. Nowhere do we see Barnabas going, I should wait for an apostle to do this. He sees a need and says, man, if you knew what grace has rescued me from, you wouldn't ask permission. Let me just jump in and serve. Son of encouragement. Here's what one pastor said. Barnabas lays money down and picks people up. What an awesome legacy. But be clear, I'm not saying, yay, Barney. I'm saying that's the work of grace in an ordinary man. So great grace produces great unity. Great grace produces great boldness in speaking Jesus. Great grace produces great generosity. Great grace produces accountability. Freedom from lack of secrets. And great grace produces great leaders. Trustworthy men and women who are walking in grace. And I really wish we could end the sermon there. But. There's a but. It's a terrible place for a chapter break. These two stories are supposed to be told together. And here is where we transition from my favorite story in the New Testament to my least favorite story in the New Testament. (laughs) It's terrible. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. That sounds familiar. And with his wife's knowledge... He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan, this is the first time we've seen Satan since Jesus was executed. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of this land. Verse 4 is so important. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Nobody made you do this. Nobody told you you had to sell your land. And nobody told you how much of the proceeds you had to give. So why are you lying? Like, this isn't law. This isn't requirement. No, you had freedom here. Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man. This ain't about us. It ain't about your offering. You've lied to God. 
When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Whoa, church just got real. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. You think? The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. There's nothing worse than being a ministry intern. (laughs) Yesterday, after our parenting workshop, Hunter was dumping the trash, and I just thought, you don't have it difficult. There's no dead body. Anyways. (laughs) After an interval... Although some of those diapers from yesterday smelled like a dip. Anyway, um, <laughs> after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Here's the question. What in the world is happening here? And I would say in contrast with the, the work of generous grace in Barnabas's life, here's what I believe we see here. Great grace produces authenticity. Great grace slays our hypocrisy. I've known this story since I was so young I don't remember when I first heard it. And if you would have asked me without me having time to reread it, if you'd have said, why did they die? I would have said they stole from God. And that's a complete misunderstanding of the text. They didn't steal from God. They had freedom to sell the land, keep the land, give a little bit. They lied about it. And scholars unanimously agree that it seems to be what they lied about is we're given everything just like Barnabas did. Look at us. I believe they saw Barnabas go from a regular guy to a guy with a nickname now who's in leadership. Because remember, this offering was public. They came and laid it at their feet, and everybody was like, Barnabas, you're so encouraging. We should call you that. And I think in their hearts, there was like, ooh, I want to share in some of that glory. There was this desire to be thought of as something that they had no intention of being. And so the problem isn't how much they gave or why they, or when they gave or, or where they gave. It's their dishonor. They tried to deceive the people of God, to steal glory from God. And God said, that's not happening. Now, I'm really glad that every time that we don't give what we might should give, God doesn't strike us dead. So why grace is our theme this morning, right? By the way, for all the reasons that you're glad you don't bring the offerings up and lay them up here in front of everybody, aren't you glad 
that God's more merciful than that. Here's the thing. There is something at play here that, that's worth noting. Um, sometimes when I hear people criticize the church, especially the modern church, especially the American church, one of the things I'll hear is, man, I read the book of Acts and it don't look nothing like this. We need to go back to the book of Acts. And every time I hear that, I think of Ananias and Sapphira. I'm like, are you sure? I don't, mm-mm, no. I don't think we need those kind of ushers on standby. <laughs> we've got the greeters and we've got the ushers and we have the undertakers. We need a volunteer team. Okay. Um, it's interesting. The first miracle recorded in the book of Acts is when the Spirit of God comes. There's tongues of fire. There's the great wind. And then they speak in their language and everybody Thousands of people hear in their own heart language the story of Jesus. Miracle number one. Peter and John going up to pray at the temple and they see the guy who's never taken a step. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Miracle number two. And then this is miracle number three. So I point that out to say miracles weren't happening every day. Sometimes when we read through the book of Acts, we're like, well, there was a miracle every couple pages. There should be a miracle in my life every couple minutes. No, even in this miraculous season, it was still uncommon that these crazy things were happening. So when they happen, we got to lean forward and go, okay, what was up here? And so there's a principle about the book of Acts that I've been waiting until this story and waiting until this week to say, But as we go through the rest of this book this year, anytime we read something, and I mean it's respectfully, weird, that we're like, that's psycho. What what in the bizarro, they fell over dead in church? Like when we read something weird, it's really important that we ask ourselves, is this ordinary or extraordinary? Is what just happened supposed to be normative for the church? Or is it exclusive for that moment in time, for that season, because of what was going on in that setting? And I believe lying in church and God takes you home to heaven is exclusive. Because of the great outpouring of God and the miracles they had seen in their midst and this fragile new little thing called ecclesia that's just finding her way, I believe God said, I'm not sharing my glory with anybody else right now. I'd rather just bring them to heaven than let them make this about them. Apparently, they're not the only story that happened that way. Because later the Apostle Paul would talk about, hey, be careful when you take the Lord's Supper. This is about the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. Don't make this about you because there's some people who've just made this about them and they are no longer with us. And when he, and when he said they're no longer with us, he doesn't mean they joined the other church down the road. So apparently in this early season, this was a thing. But I believe this has to do with hypocrisy. Glory stealing. 
which we'll talk more about next week. Great grace produces great authenticity. We don't have to lie to somebody else or to ourselves about who we are because we're walking in mega grace. Okay? So, if that's odd or exclusive, then what is ordinary? And so, this story is not about giving, but it is in the context of generosity. And so, as this new thing called Ecclesia is starting, I want to address the question, what's the deal about tithing? Okay? Because I want to talk about what's normative. You excited? We're going to talk about tithing. Everybody excited? All right? Only a couple more minutes. Just give me a few more minutes, okay? I want to talk about tithing. A question that I get asked very frequently, a question that a lot of people enjoy debating about, even uh, among evangelical circles. Here's the question. Is tithing to a church a New Testament command? Now, if you're new to church and you're like, I don't know what this is and I don't really care, just hang with me for a second. This is one of those things that church people like to argue about because apparently we have nothing better to do. So tithing was an Old Testament command, no mistake about it. It was in the Mosaic Law, right? Kind of. Technically, in the Old Testament law, there were tithe and offering. There's actually a bunch of tithes. So the word tithe means tenth. A tithe is literally ten percent, right? In the Old Testament, though, there was a whole bunch of tithes for a whole bunch of different things you had that would be considered valuable, okay? Scholars, we don't know. None of us live then. So scholars don't totally know how to monetize historical data. But depending on who you read, the tithes mentioned in the Old Testament were somewhere between 22% and as high as 35% of your stuff, valuables. So it actually wasn't 10%. It was a lot higher. One of my favorite theologians thinks it's somewhere around 28%. But we're guessing. We just know it was way more than 10. So is the tithe an Old Testament command? Absolutely. But then we're no longer under the law. We are now under grace. Supersized mega grace. So praise the Lord. This isn't required. And, and the other question I get is, okay, so if tithing is a New Testament thing, does it have to be to a church? Because I want to tithe to this other charitable organization. Does it have to be to a church? And here's the answer. Is tithing a New Testament command? No. You're like, are you sure you're a pastor? I've never heard a pastor say, don't tithe. I didn't. Hang with me. We're not done. Next week when the lights don't work, I'll know everybody. Stop listening right now. <laughs> um, here's, here's why I say no. It's not commanded in the New Testament, and that's not how things work under grace. There are things that are absolutely commanded under grace. Let's, let's not be mistaken. Jesus told us a bunch of stuff to do and not to do. And then so did his apostles. But nowhere, anywhere in the New Testament, does it say, thou shalt tithe. <laughs> nowhere, right? And nowhere does it say, when you do tithe, 
Z, you have to bring it to Ecclesia. It's not commanded anywhere. But I don't know that that's the best question. I think there is a better question. The better question is not, is tithing to a church a New Testament command? It's this. Is tithing to my church a New Testament concept? Not commanded, but like, do we see that principle at play as a standard to kind of follow? And the answer wholeheartedly is yes, as a starting point. So again, if we're just defining tithe as 10%, I believe the New Testament principle is yes, that's kind of where it starts. And here's the thing. I've had people pretty aggressively say, tithing is Old Testament at all. We should be under the New Testament. Okay, sell your house and bring all the proceeds to the church and lay them at my feet. Never mind. Old Testament sounds great. (laughs) Never liked pork anyways. It's just, I've never had a friend ever say that, <laughs> that they didn't like pork. Um, <laughs> this idea that it's not a command, it's a concept, goes back to the fact that before there was such a thing as a law, we see the principle of tithing prior to the Mosaic law. And then Jesus talks about a tithe. And here's the thing. Jesus confronted a bunch of stuff about the law, right? If you don't think so, just talk to some Jewish people when you get to heaven and say, so how'd you feel when Jesus talked about the Sabbath? And they'll be like, we've tried to kill him. And he, he was sarcastic and aggressive about parts of the Mosaic law. But he talked about tithing as though it was a healthy thing. And then we see that principle at play in Ecclesia. Right? And here's the thing. These, don't forget, these people that we're reading about in this narrative, they are Jewish. The idea of bringing their offering to the place where they worship to help fund ministry through the place that they call their place of worship was the most natural, obvious, common sense thing. It never would have crossed their mind. Man, I've been rescued by grace and birthed into this brand new thing that's given me a new identity and a new purpose. I'm going to take my resources and help someone else out there somewhere, another organization. Just never would have crossed their mind. And so I, I do think the beginning principle in the scriptures is that where we worship, where our family benefits from the service and ministry of, is where we begin With our tithe. I think our offerings above that can go wherever the Holy Spirit leads. But understand, we're not giving our tithes to our church. Tithe belongs to the Lord. Which is why we believe here at Temple, it's between you and Him. There are plenty of churches in the Metroplex and throughout the U.S. that make, if you want to be a member of their church, you have to bring in a W-2. That creeps me out. Just saying. No offense if you came from that church. We're not doing that. The tithe is the Lord's. It's between you and the Lord. Right? The only time we ever try to do math about your giving is if you're asking for the scholarship at Temple Christian School that comes if you go here. If you don't know about that, there's a scholarship. 
been a member for a year and tithing and serving in this church, you can apply for a scholarship at Temple Christian School. And that scholarship says we tithe, and then it says parentheses, 10% of our income annually to the work here. And then we look at the math. Does that make sense? Right? They've given $50 in the last three years. I don't think they're living on $100 a year, right? Um, that's the only time we ever have a conversation with you. And that's between you and the Lord. And, it, and if you're like, no, I don't want to tithe here, that's between you and the Lord as well. You don't qualify for that scholarship at this point. But we're not getting up in your business. That is between you and the Lord. Does that make sense? Because I think when great grace does its work, that'll take care of itself. Like great grace can't help but alter our value system, what we do with our resources. I just truly think if it's going to do its work in us, it'll produce great generosity. I believe, three more minutes, here's what I believe. This conversation actually isn't about tithing or not tithing or even giving or not giving. It's about what's the reason for this conversation. Everything we give is simply a response to what he's given. And and, and the bigger question today is not what are you giving? What are you giving? No, it's what have you been given? Because if we'll see the magnitude of the mega grace that has been lavishly poured out on us, it'll produce life change. Which makes the story of Jesus unlike any other religion in the world. Every religion in the world, you've got to bring something to that God. You've got to sacrifice something to that God. Ours is the only narrative that says, you have nothing to give him. He's giving. And not just giving like, eh. Giving he who did not spare his own son. If he did that, will he not freely give us all things? Our God is a giver. And every other religion that's ever existed, that God is a taker. The whole narrative of our faith begins with God giving. Well, kind of. He does take. He takes our failures. He takes our doubts. He takes our fears. He takes our addictions. He takes our worst days, our deepest regret, our ugliest shame. And then he gives life and joy and peace and identity and purpose and meaning and flourishing and family and satisfaction unlike anything else we've ever experienced. That's the great exchange of great grace. Because I believe that only Jesus can satisfy the longings of the human heart, I believe nothing else is worth laying my life down for. (laughs) It's only Jesus. What he's given... What he's poured out. And we're going to watch that be produced in these lives of great grace. Because here's the deal. The heartbreaking reality is the first funeral 
at the first Ecclesia Church of Jerusalem is for a couple of hypocrites who made it about them. But the next funeral is going to be for the first martyr who said, I will gladly lay my life down for Jesus because of what he has given to me. By the way, just a couple pages from now. And not an apostle, not a big wig, an ordinary guy who's experienced great grace. Says my life is nothing compared to him. What God does is with joy. He joyfully gives joy. And we give out of that. God loves a cheerful giver. Nobody's more cheerful than the one who gives cheer. I'll share the story and then we'll be done. Um, of the weirdness of the last couple of years. Um, having church and then not having church and then seats spread out. Do you remember that? I hadn't thought about that in a while. I just pictured this room this week when it was all separated and ugh. One of the things that happened during that strange window of time is a lady walked to church from across the interstate when it was blazing Texas hot outside. She walked in the door and was dehydrated, asking through very broken English for some water. And over the course of time, through Tommy and Terry, some of us, we got to know Maria. Maria had just come to the U.S. from Romania and had a lot of financial needs. She's been through a lot. But in order to get the next step in her life, she needed a vehicle. And very casually, word went out, hey, we've got somebody who needs a vehicle. Somehow that message, I think it was on some Facebook page for the ladies. Mackenzie Cutchell saw that message. And they said, we have a car we were going to sell. We're just going to give it to her for the cost of nothing. Nobody made them do it. I mean, maybe Mackenzie made Justin do it, if we're honest. (laughs) And it was this beautiful and encouraging thing. She could hardly believe it. But the greatness of that story wasn't the compassion of Cutchels. It's the work of great grace that sets us free from holding on to stuff so that we can bless other people. Like the glory isn't y'all are so generous. The glory is you're clearly being transformed from the inside out by a generous God. That's the work. Mega Grace.